Chapter Seventeen, Part One of In Search of the Unknown by Robert W. Chambers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter Seventeen. Dawn came, the dawn of a day that I am destined never to forget. Long rosy streamers of light broke through the forest shaking, quivering, like unstable beams from celestial searchlights. Mist floated upward from marsh and lake, and through it the spectral palms loomed, drooping fronds embroidered with dew. For a while the ringing outburst of bird music dominated all, but it soon ceased with dropping notes from the crimson cardinals repeated in lengthening minor intervals, and then the spell of silence returned, broken only by the faint splash of mullet, mocking the sun with sinuous silver flashes. "'Good morning,' said a low voice from the door, as I stood encouraging the campfire with splinterwood and dead palmetto fans. Fresh and sweet from her toilet as a dew-drenched rose, Miss Barrison stood there, sniffing the morning air daintily, thoroughly. "'Too much perfume,' she said. "'Too much like Ilang Ilang in a department store. Central Park smells sweeter on an April morning.' "'Are you criticizing the wild jasmine?' I asked. "'I'm criticizing an exotic smell. Am I not permitted to comment on the tropics?' Fishing out a cedar log from the lumber stack, I fell to chopping it vigorously. The axe strokes made a cheerful racket through the woods. "'Did you hear anything last night after you retired?' I asked. "'Something was at my window, something that thumped softly, and seemed to be feeling all over the glass. To tell you the truth, I was silly enough to remain dressed all night.' "'You don't look it,' I said. Oh, when daylight came I had a chance, she added, laughing. All the same, said I, leaning on the axe and watching her, you are about the coolest and pluckiest woman I ever knew. We were all in the same fix, she said modestly. No, we were not. Now I'll tell you the truth. My hair stood up the greater part of the night, you are looking upon a poltroon, Miss Barrison. Then there was something at your window, too. Something! A dozen! They were monkeying with the sashes and panes all night long, and I imagined that I could hear them breathing, as though from effort of intense eagerness. Ouch! I came as near losing my nerve as I care to. I came within an ace of hurling those cursed pies through the window at them. I'd bolt today if I wasn't afraid to play the coward. Most people are brave for that reason, she said. The dog, who had slept under my bunk, and who had contributed to my entertainment by sighing and moaning all night, now appeared ready for business. Business, in his case, being the operation of feeding. I presented him with a concentrated tablet, which he cautiously investigated, and then rolled on. "'Nice testimonial for the people who concocted it,' I said in disgust. 
I wish I had an egg. There are some concentrated egg tablets in the shanty, said Miss Barrison, but the idea was not attractive. I refuse to fry a pill for breakfast, I said sullenly, and set the coffee-pot on the coals. In spite of the dewy beauty of the morning, breakfast was not a cheerful function. Professor Farrago appeared, clad in sun-helmet and cocky. I had seldom seen him depressed, but he was now, and his very efforts to disguise it only emphasized his visible anxiety. His preparations for the day, too, had an ominous aspect to me. He gave his orders and we obeyed, instinctively suppressing questions. First, he and I transported all personal luggage of the company to the big electric launch, Miss Barrison's effects, his, and my own, his private papers, the stenographic reports, and all memoranda were tied up together and carried aboard. Then, to my surprise, two weeks concentrated rations for two, and mineral water sufficient for the same period, were stowed away aboard the launch. Several times he asked me whether I knew how to run the boat, and I assured him that I did. In a short time nothing was left ashore except the bare furnishings of the cabin, the female wearing apparel, the steel cage and chemicals which I had brought, and the twelve apple pies, the latter under lock and key in my room. As the preparations came to an end, the professor's gentle melancholy seemed to deepen. Once I ventured to ask him if he was indisposed, and he replied that he had never felt in better physical condition. Presently he bade me fetch the pies, and I brought them, and at a sign from him placed them inside the steel cage, closing and locking the door. "'I believe,' he said, glancing from Miss Barrison to me and from me to the dog, "'I believe that we are ready to start.' He went to the cabin and locked the door on the outside, pocketing the key. Then he backed up to the steel cage, stooped and lifted his end as I lifted mine, and together we started off through the forest, bearing the cage between us, as porters carry a heavy piece of luggage. Miss Barrison came next, carrying the trousseau, the tank, hose, and chemicals, and the dog followed her, probably not from affection for us, but because he was afraid to be left alone. We walked in silence, the professor and I keeping an instinctive lookout for snakes, but we encountered nothing of that sort. On every side, touching our shoulders, crowded the closely woven and impenetrable tangle of the jungle, and we threaded it along a narrow path, which he no doubt had cut, for the machete marks were still fresh, and the blazes on hickory, live-oak, and palm were all wet with dripping sap, and swarming with eager, brilliant butterflies. At times across our course flowed shallow, rapid streams of water, clear as crystal, and most alluring to the thirsty. "'There's fever in every drop,' said the professor, as I mentioned my thirst. "'Take the bottled water if you mean to stay a little longer.' "'Stay where?' I asked. On earth, he replied tersely, 
and we marched on. The beauty of the tropics is marred somewhat for me. Under all the fresh splendor of color, death lurks in brilliant tints. Where painted fruit hangs temptingly, where great sulky blossoms exhale alluring scent, where the elapsed coils inlaid with scarlet, black, and saffron, where in the shadow of a palmetto frond a succession of velvety black diamonds mark the rattler's swollen length, there death is. And his invisible consort, horror, creeps where the snake whose mouth is lined with white creeps, where the tarantula squats, hairy, motionless, where a bit of living enamel fringed with orange undulates along a mossy log. Thinking of these things, and watchful, lest unawares terror unfold from some blossoming and leafy covert, I scarcely noticed the beauty of the glade we had entered, a long oval, crossbarred with sunshine, which fell on hedges of scrub palmetto, chin-high, interlaced with golden blossoms of the jasmine. And all around, like pillars supporting a high green canopy above a throne, towered the silvery stems of palms, fretted with pale rose-tinted lichens, and hung with draperies of grapevine. "'This is the place,' said Professor Farrago. His quiet, passionless voice sounded strange to me. His words seemed strange, too, each one heavily weighted with hidden meaning. We set the cage on the ground. He unlocked and opened the steel-barred door, and kneeling, carefully arranged the pies along the center of the cage. "'I have a curious presentiment,' he said, "'that I shall not come out of this experiment unscathed.' "'Don't for heaven's sake say that!' I broke out, my nerves on edge again. "'Why not?' he asked, surprised. "'I am not afraid.' "'Not afraid to die?' I demanded, exasperated. "'Who spoke of dying?' he inquired mildly. "'What I said was that I do not expect to come out of this affair unscathed.' I did not comprehend his meaning, but I understood the reproof conveyed. He closed and locked the cage door again, and came towards us, balancing the key across the palm of his hand. Miss Barrison had seated herself on the leaves. I stood back as the professor sat down beside her, then, at a gesture from him, took the place he indicated on his left. "'Before we begin,' he said calmly, "'there are several things you ought to know, and which I have not yet told you. The first concerns the feminine wearing apparel, which Mr. Gilland brought me.' He turned to Miss Barrison, and asked her whether she had brought a complete outfit, and she opened the bundle on her knees and handed it to him. "'I cannot,' he said, "'delicately explain in so many words what use I expect to make of this apparel. Nor do I yet know whether I shall have any use at all for it. That can only be a theoretical speculation, until, within a few more hours, my theory is proven or disproven. And, he said, suddenly turning on me, 
my theory concerning these invisible creatures is the most extraordinary and audacious theory ever entertained by man, since Columbus presumed that there must lie somewhere a hidden continent which nobody had ever seen. He passed his hand over his protruding forehead, lost for a moment in deepest reflection. Then, "'Have you ever heard of this fix?' he asked. "'It seems to me that Ponce de Leon wrote of something,' I began, hesitating. "'Yes, the famous lines of the third volume, which have set so many wise men guessing. You recall them.' And there, alas, within sound of the fountain of youth, whose waters tint the skin, till the whole body glows softly like the petal of a rose, there, alas, in the new world already blooming, the eternal enigma I beheld in the flesh living. Yet it faded even as I looked, although I swear it lived and breathed. This is the Sphinx. A silence. Then I said, Those lines are meaningless to me. Not to me, said Miss Barrison softly. The professor looked at her. Ah, child, ever subtler, ever surer. The eternal enigma is no enigma to you. What is the Sphinx? I asked. Have you read De Soto or Goya? Yes, both. I remember now that De Soto records the Syacus legend of the Sphinx, something about a goddess. Not a goddess said Miss Barrison, her lips touched with a smile. Sometimes, said the professor gently, and Goya said, It has come to my ears, while in the lands of the Syacus, that the Sphinx surely lives, as bolder and more curious men than I may, God willing, prove to the world hereafter. But what is the Sphinx? I insisted. For centuries wise men and savants have asked each other that question. I have answered it for myself. I am now to prove it, I trust. His face darkened, and again and again he stroked his heavy brow. If anything occurs, he said, taking my hand in his left and Miss Barrison's hand in his right, promise me to obey my wishes, will you? Yes, we said together. If I lose my life, or, or disappear, promise me on your honor to get to the electric launch as soon as possible, and make all speed northward, placing my private papers, the reports of Miss Barrison, and your own reports, in the hands of the authorities in Bronx Park. Don't attempt to aid me. Don't delay to search for me. Do you promise? Yes, we breathed together. He looked at us solemnly. If you fail me, you betray me, he said. We swore obedience. Then let us begin, he said, and he rose and went to the steel cage. Unlocking the door, he flung it wide and stepped inside, leaving the cage door open. The moment a single pie is disturbed, he said to me, I shall close the steel door from the inside, 
and you and Miss Barrison will then dump the rosium oxide and the strontium into the tank, clap on the lid, turn the nozzle of the hose on the cage, and spray it thoroughly. Whatever is invisible in the cage will become visible and of a faint rose color. And when the trapped creature becomes visible, hold yourselves ready to aid me as long as I am able to give you orders. After that, either all will go well, or all will go otherwise, and you must run for the launch. He seated himself in the cage near the open door. I placed the steel tank near the cage, uncoiled the hose attachment, unscrewed the top, and dumped in the salts of strontium. Miss Barrison unwrapped the bottle of rosium oxide and loosened the cork. We examined this pearl and pink powder, and shook it up so that it might run out quickly. Then Miss Barrison sat down, and presently became absorbed in a stenographic report of the proceedings up to date. When Miss Barrison finished her report, she handed me the bundle of papers. I stowed them away in my wallet, and we sat down together beside the tank. Inside the cage, Professor Farrago was seated, his spectacled eyes fixed on the row of pies. For a while, although realizing perfectly that our quarry was transparent and invisible, we unconsciously strained our eyes in quest of something stirring in the forest. I should think, said I in a low voice, that the odor of the pies might draw at least one out of the odd dozen that came rubbing up against my window last night. Hush, listen, she breathed. But we heard nothing save the snoring of the overfed dog at our feet. He'll give us ample notice by butting into Miss Barrison's skirts, I observed. No need of our watching, Professor. The professor nodded. Presently he removed his spectacles, and lay back against the bars, closing his eyes. At first the forest silence seemed cheerful there in the flecked sunlight. The spotted wood-gnats gyrated merrily, chased by dragonflies. The shy wood-birds hopped from branch to twig, peering at us in friendly inquiry. A lithe gray squirrel, plumy tail undulating, rambled serenely around the cage, sniffing at the pastry within. Suddenly, without apparent reason, the squirrel sprang to a tree-trunk, hung a moment on the bark, quivering all over, then dashed away into the jungle. "'Why did he act like that?' whispered Miss Barrison. And after a moment, "'How still it is! Where have the birds gone?' In the ominous silence, the dog began to whimper in his sleep, and his hind legs kicked convulsively. "'He's dreaming,' I began. The words were almost driven down my throat by the dog, who, without a yelp of warning, hurled himself at Miss Barrison and alighted on my chest, forepaws around my neck. I cast him scornfully from me, but he scrambled back, digging like a mole to get under us. "'The transparent creatures,' whispered Miss Barrison. "'Look, see that pie move!' I sprang to my feet, just as the professor, jamming on his spectacles, leaned forward and slammed the cage door. 
I've got one, he shouted frantically. There's one in the cage. Turn on that hose. Wait a second, said Miss Barrison calmly, uncorking the bottle and pouring a pearly stream of roseum oxide into the tank. Quick, it's fizzing. Screw on the top. In a second I had screwed the top fast, seized the hose, and directed a hissing cloud of vapor through the cage bars. For a moment nothing was heard save the whistling rush of the perfumed spray escaping. A delicious odor of roses filled the air. Then, slowly, there in the sunshine, a misty something grew in the cage, a glistening, pearl-tinted phantom imperceptibly taking shape in space, vague at first as a shred of lake vapor, then lengthening, rounding into flowing form, clearer, clearer. The Sphinx! gasped the professor. In the name of heaven, play that hose! As he spoke, the treacherous hose burst. A showery pillar of rose-colored vapor enveloped everything. Through the thickening fog, for one brief instant, a human form appeared like magic. A woman's form, flawless, exquisite as a statue, pure as marble. Then the swimming vapor buried it, cage, pies, and all. We ran frantically around the cage in the obscurity, appealing for instructions and feeling for the bars. Once the professor's muffled voice was heard demanding the wearing apparel, and I groped about and found it and stuffed it through the bars of the cage. "'Do you need help?' I shouted. There was no response. Staring around through the thickening vapor of roseum rolling in clouds from the overturned tank, I heard Miss Barrison's voice calling. "'I can't move. A transparent lady is holding me.' Blindly I rushed about, arms outstretched, and the next moment struck the door of the cage so hard that the impact almost knocked me senseless. Clutching it to steady myself, it suddenly flew open. A rush of partly visible creatures passed me like a burst of pink flames, and in the midst, borne swiftly away on the crest of the outrush, the professor passed like a bolt shot from a catapult, and his last cry came wafted back to me from the forest as I swayed there, drunk with the stupefying perfume. Don't worry, I'm all right. I staggered out into the clearer air towards a figure seen dimly through swirling vapor. Are you hurt? I stammered, clasping Miss Barrison in my arms. No, oh no, she said, wringing her hands. But the professor, I saw him. I could not scream. I could not move. They had him. I saw him too, I groaned. There was not one trace of terror on his face. He was actually smiling. Overcome at the sublime courage of the man, we wept in each other's arms. End of part one of chapter seventeen.